Today's scripture reading is from the book of Peter 1, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and 9 through 17. In addition to your own Bible, you may find this on the backside of your message notes or beginning on page 872 in your worship Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see you, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. It be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God honor the emperor. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This is the week that we remember our birth as a nation and the, uh, the beautiful country that we enjoy here in the United States of America. And one of the things that we've noticed over the past 20 or 30 or 50 years is that the, the, the respect for Christian tradition has vastly eroded in our country over the course of these past, uh, these past few decades. And oftentimes, we are very worried about that and concerned about that as well we, as well we perhaps should be. Uh, and we tend to fear sometimes that if our government and our country doesn't uh, uh, make it easy for us to be Christian, the gospel might be destroyed. And yet, we realize as soon as we think that, that can't be true. That can't be true. For the gospel of Jesus Christ has thrived in every culture and in every country. And in fact, it almost seems as though the gospel expands more the less it is encouraged by the, the, the powers that be. I remember hearing when I was a kid because my family knew a few missionaries who had been in China. And I was a kid in the early 60s, and so that wasn't too long after the late 40s. And we would, uh, some of you can remember the late 40s, but... I'm glad you can, but I can't. So, uh, but they would talk about the way that all the missionaries were thrown out of China uh, during the communist revolution, and there was so much concern over the, the loss of the Christian message in China. We had those great heroes of the Christian church, one, for example, named Hudson Taylor, a hero of mine, who went to China when he was, I think, only 17 or 19 years old. 
One of those two years. And he went there, um, and he uh, was responsible for developing, ultimately, the China Inland Mission. He was very uh, uh, innovative and, and was willing to do whatever it needed to incarnate the gospel into that culture. In fact, he was often disrespected by his own missionary compatriots because in those days, the assumption was that the British culture needed to be adopted in order for Christianity to be adopted. So often, you would turn Chinese persons into little British people. You'd have your own compounds and all that sort of thing. They'd come. And Hudson Taylor thought, I don't think that's the way the gospel is supposed to go. So even though he was a young teenager or even in his early 20s, he began to dress like a Chinese person. He would go into the inland parts of China, and he started missions inside of China and was often ridiculed for that. And yet his prescience was uh, justified by the witness of history, how the gospel began to be incarnated within the Chinese people by the embracing of the culture and letting the gospel work in that culture. A great hero of mine. I've read a couple of his biographies. Well, uh, you know, uh, years after him, having started that mission, and the mission still exists today, all those missions got kicked out, and everybody was concerned. Is the gospel going to die? Well, when China began to open up in the 70s and people were able to go back in and see, they were amazed at how much the, the, church, the Chinese church had uh, rapidly grown during the course of that 30, 40 years without many Anglo people to help them be strong in their faith. They grew and multiplied because the gospel is not limited by government uh, interference or whatever. Even though many people even lost their lives as a result of that, the gospel works. And in fact, I have a friend who is right now uh, an undercover missionary in China. He's there under the auspices of teaching uh, English to uh, uh, graduate students, English as a second language. He's there because you can't have missionaries in China, but he's there to teach them. And one of the things he teaches them is out of the Bible, about the Christianity of the Bible. And he has himself baptized hundreds of people in faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, to, so I, I won't say his name <laughs> because uh, he's there uh, at the welcome of the government, but in order to teach English. So there's many ways that the gospel moves forward despite government uh, uh, pressure or lack of interest or even persecution. And that's what happened in the first century. It was happening right in the middle of the, uh, uh, at the later part of the first century as uh, the Christian message continued to spread. Persecution began to happen. Oppression began to happen. And somehow the gospel was able to thrive in the midst of that. Now, I think we should do everything we should, can in order to uh, prevent uh, interference from uh, any government into uh, the right of, right of assembly and of worship. That's certainly true. But we shouldn't mistake that valid concern for the uh, uh, overarching concern to realize that with the gospel of Jesus Christ can move forward in every circumstance and in every culture. So let's take a look at how that can do by looking at this little book of First Peter, which is a book that was written late in the first century, one of the latter books having written, uh, which is speaking to a people, uh, of, a group of Christians who are in, undergoing persecution and who will uh, undergo immense persecution in days ahead. So Peter writes this and the second letter, the first and second letters of, uh, of Peter, written to believers, Gentile believers, uh, who are, uh, uh, are trying to figure out how to follow Christ in the midst of a nation, a country of, at best, indifference, but at worst, often outright persecution. What was it that he said to them? Well, this is part of the text which, uh, which uh, uh, Pat read for us a little bit earlier. 
She read to them about how they are to relate to the culture around them and how they are to, uh, how, to, how they are to look at their own culture as a church itself. He called them to understand their true identity as the people of God brought together from all nations and all cultures. He wanted them to affirm their true identity and out of that identity live the deeds that are requisite to that identity, the deeds of the kingdom. He challenged them in two ways. One, to remember that they needed to have honorable conduct, and they needed also to remember they were a holy nation. I'm going to take these in the backwards order that they are printed because I think it's important for us to see them in that section. He tried to challenge them to have honorable conduct because they were a holy nation nation. Let's take the second of those first, the latter portion of this text. He challenged them to honorable conduct. Now, again, they were experiencing growing persecution, and the apostle Peter challenged them to engage in honorable conduct no matter what was going on. And why should they do that? Because they were to live as the free servants of God as a part of his holy nation. The church of Christ, the church of God, his holy nation. Honorable conduct. Let's take that, the last section of this text. Um, he says uh, in verse uh, uh, 11 of this text, and I hope I did print a little bit more on the back of your note than I had Pat read for you today. And of course, you're always invited to bring your own Bibles to worship, which is a wonderful habit to develop. He says about them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honorable conduct. That's the first point. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see that the apostle Peter is challenging these people in the midst of a, what might, we might consider often a corrupt and insensitive government to live as free people, and there are two aspects of that that we see. We see in the 11 and 12, they live to, to live as free people by engaging in honorable conduct before the Gentiles, before the Gentiles. And in all those people, in, uh, uh, you see, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, it was assumed that once you became a part of the family of God, you were part of a brand new identity, a brand new person, a brand new people. And you were to live honorably among all the people who were around you. Now, it's easy for us to not see exactly what this was like because these people were called to an entirely different standard of living. They were called to be uh, very different people from the people around them. They were to live honorably among, among them. That's why it says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In those days, as in our day, there was a very different standard of sexual morality that was all around them. He says, I don't care what it's like out there. You live honorably. 
I don't care if people despise you for it, if people call you names because of it. I don't people make fun of you because of it. I want you to live honorably, not engaging in the passions the way that those outside of grace do. Not to live like the culture around them. And so they are to live honorably. And they had such a different culture than us, but we have so many more opportunities to live dishonorably, don't don't we, today? Uh, There's so much technology and so much freedom and so much openness that you can live pretty much any way that you want and no one will mind. And all too often, we in the church think that that applies to us as well. No, we're called to live honorably. Often the people of those days, as were the Jews before them, uh, in the days they had a higher sexual standard, a higher sexual ethic, and often, and this went on, as Gentiles came into the church, they began to have to adopt the, uh, the standards of the Holy Scriptures as Jewish, uh, Jewish persons and Jewish believers had begun to operate, of living with sexually moral lives, one man, one woman, marriage bed undefiled, taking care of our children, not putting them out on the street, Sometimes that's what happened. All these things that related to the family, they started to live differently like that. And it was often despised by others and yet respected all the same time, at the same time. They had honorable conduct before the Gentiles. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. You see, sometimes we think of, I will honor God as long as everybody else honors me, as long as I get what I want out of it. But you see what he's saying? Live honorably among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, in other words, the assumption is you're going to be ridiculed for it. You're going to be, it might affect your ability to advance in the company. It might affect many things in your life negatively, but it's still the right thing to do. Live honorably among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. Living a life of good deeds is our opportunity and our responsibility, no matter what cultural environment that we live that we live in. There are right ways to act. It is right to teach every human being, no matter who they are, as a person of valued by God. Every human being is made in the image of God. Believe it or not, it was the it was uh, appropriate in that day. And uh, within the law, if you had a baby that you did not want to keep, normally this would have been a girl baby, Roman law allowed you to put that baby out on the street and to let it simply die. This happened all the time, and it was perfectly legal. It was, and there are many reasons why people, they wanted to have boy babies, they had too many babies, or they just didn't know it would be done. In the early church, they began to, collect these little babies because they understood that no matter whose baby that was or how that baby came in the world, whether that baby was loved by anyone, that baby was a baby made in the image of God, and they would take care of it. The first hospitals and care places for orphans were started by Christians, by Christians. They were the, the, the caring for people no matter who they were. When the plagues came in the early, first cent- uh, early second century of the church, the early hundreds of the church, uh, when the plagues came and no one knew how it, how, uh, what was causing it, often people scattered into the country, even leaving loved ones and family members behind because they didn't know why people were getting sick and they wanted to protect themselves. But very often, Christian people stayed 
they stayed and they stayed and they cared for people who were dying and many of those people lived just because of having been cared for. Although, of course, many of them died and many Christians died as well by exposing themselves to the, the malady that was in the, the rampant around that culture. And many of them died. Why? Because they, were, they had a hope that went beyond the grave and they knew it was the right thing to do. They lived honorable amongst people. And this was one of the contributors among many, but one significant contributor, so that as the plague vanished away and people came back into the countries, these Christian people, so despised and so disrespected, now had huge respect from their countrymen. Why? Because they had lived honorably among people. They had treated people not as a you know, political commodities, not as economic commodities, but as human beings made in the image of God. Why? Because this was the right thing to do. We, uh, one of the things that concerns me sometimes in the way that Christians sometimes relate to the culture around them is they are not always honorable in how they treat people. Christian people have disagreements with other people as well, but Christian people should deal with people honorably not underhandedly, not vilifying, not throwing mud at people, not overly character, you know, bringing a caricature against other people. This is something that I think was very uh, problematic in our culture, and it's getting worse all the time. If I disagree, if you disagree with me and don't see my viewpoint, I can do anything I want to you, versically. I can, I can slant you in any kind of way that I want to, and that's not the Christian way. People will sometimes speak evil of us for saying and believing in certain things, but we should never be speaking people evil of other people. Be not overcome by evil, the Scripture says, but what? Overcome evil with good. Yes, we're called to honorable conduct, to live as free servants of God by doing good deeds in such a way that I'm those who had one day in the past disrespected us, now maybe are joined with us in glorifying God on that day. Yes, often Christians who uh, um, have to work in work environments where there are not many Christians around them, they live purely separatistic lives, and they live and they speak disdainfully about those who are around them. They gather in their own little sub-little groups so they don't have to be around those bad people over there. And then some days they feel guilty and they kind of feel they ought to share the gospel with those people. No, they need to do the Jesus thing, which is to embrace everybody around them. Yes, that's what it means to live honorably. But we have, also, we have honorable conduct, not just before the Gentiles here, but also it says here, before the government. Do you see that? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that, that by doing good, again, the idea of good deeds, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. You see, we are absolutely free, and so because our ultimate allegiance is to the God who loved us and gave himself for us, therefore we can voluntarily be subject to human institutions because our ultimate submission is not to the institution but to God above. We can live as free people, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God. 
As a great theologian said one day, you got to serve somebody. His name was Bob Dylan. You got to serve somebody. Everybody serves somebody. Everybody. You cannot not serve or give yourself to something. And if you, whatever you serve, you become a slave to. It's your ultimate identity. And the only identity that truly sets you free is Jesus Christ, whom therefore the Son sets free, is free indeed, Jesus himself said. So as free servants of God, we're able to live in obedience and subject to the laws of our land, the leaders of our land. And let me tell you this, that matters no matter which land you live in. He was not writing to the United States of America. He was not writing to us. To whom was he writing? He was writing to people who were under the thumb of Rome. Many of them had no rights. They had leaders of terrible moral character often. And yet they, he was saying to these people, don't revolt, don't be snide, because you serve a living God, you can be subject to your leaders. Now, whenever I say these kinds of things, I'm always reluctant to them because I get this knowing kind of look. But you see, I see Christians break this rule all the time. I do not like to see Christians being disrespectful of their leadership, whether his name is Trump or Obama. And it saddens me to realize that often we think if we like one, we can hate the other despise the other, right? It's not the Christian way. It's not the Christian way. We're called to be respectful of all those who are, even if we disagree with them as often we do, even if they don't look out for our needs as often they don't, even when we're frustrated with them. And uh, I always reluctant to bring this, these kinds of things up because you, people always think I'm trying to talk about one thing versus the other. No, I'm saying Christians find a new way. They find a way of honoring. If we are called to honor Emperor Nero, we also were called to honor President Obama, and a lot of us didn't. If we were called to honor President, uh, 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 Emperor Nero, we're also called to honor President Trump, and many of us don't. There's a middle way because Christians have a, 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 an allegiance which is far beyond our national country of origin, and it's for Jesus Christ. And that means also that countries in, uh, that we need to be respectful and honorable towards sovereign leaders of other countries as well. You see, Christians should be able to say, that's not my country, but that's a good country because God has put leaders in that country. I may not like the way the leaders are selected in that country. It's very difficult. And some of you are going to be mad at me after this over, but you'll get over it. <laughs> you'll get over it. It's frustrating to me that Christians are so caught up in partisanship. They're so caught up in partisanship that they forget that their ultimate citizenship is not in this country or in any other country, but in the kingdom of God, the city of God. Honorable conduct before the God. So we should be respectful of the offices, of the, of the institutions that God has put. We should, uh, we should do what we can to improve them, and we're right to be involved to the degree we want to be in that process. That's good. But we always do it, first of all, as Christians, doing it in the Christian way. Yes. 
Uh, he says here, uh, uh, live as people of free, not using freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brethren. Fear God. Honor the emperor. He says to them twice because it had to have been so difficult to honor that leadership which was often so oppressive and so wrongheaded and so far away from them. You're called to live honorably, he says. Why? We are called to live honorably before the Gentiles and before the government. Why? Because we understand that ultimately we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. So let's see this. I got to the end of this uh, message first, uh, end of this uh, text first, because you want to see, we want to see that just before he talks about how we need to be submissive to authority and to live honorably he speaks about it in the context of who they are as a people. They are a holy nation. Verse 9 of this text, if you can look at it, it says, But you are a chosen race. You, that is you followers of Jesus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He calls them to live honorably in their culture because they are a part of a bigger picture culture. They are a part of God's holy nation. Oh, before I, I forgot one thing. I got caught. In, in, the, in the, uh, 130 A.D., there is a letter um, written by an unknown Christian who calls himself disciple to a man named Diognetus trying to talk about the Christian faith. 130 A.D., one of the earliest extra-biblical documents that we have. And here's what he says about what Christians were like in that day as he's trying to promote Christianity to this atheistic or agnostic or a pagan person. He says this, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. In other words, they're not just Greeks. They're not just, you know, uh, whatever. They're not just Romans. They're multicultural. For he says, they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any Singularity. In other words, they live right in the middle of you. They're all around you. They don't dress different. They don't act different. They don't have their own little code words. They live right in the middle of us, he says. He says, the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocate of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities according as the lot of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. In other words, they're right in the middle of us, but there's a different life they live. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. In other words, there's a certain, there's sort of a resident alien feeling to these Christians. They're committed to their local countries, but they also are citizens of a different country. 
They're, they're, they're welcoming, and yet they feel somewhat excluded. They have this sort of push-pull, this dynamic tension between embracing their culture and being separate from their culture. That's kind of what he's saying. Going on, he says, they marry as do everyone else. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all, for they are, they are dishonored, yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if made into new life. When they are assaulted by Jews as foreigners or persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That's a beautiful description of what this early fledgling, within a hundred years after Jesus died, group could be described as all across the world. Fitting in and yet not fitting in. Loving and not being loved. Sharing a common table but not a common bed. These descriptors, no wonder there was a beauty about the life of these people. Why? Because as I said, as I jumped into my next point too quickly, they understood they were a holy nation. They had a true citizenship. They understood their true identity. They had an identity deeper and far more significant than the country in which they lived and the leaders to whom they were subject. They were as a church a holy nation, a holy temple even. He says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, I mean, these were people with no power, no influence, no standing, but they saw themselves as the people of God as a fulfillment of that long, beautiful story God had been telling from the earliest of days through Abraham and then through Moses, uh, through Abraham and then through Moses and then through the prophets and ultimately through that final prophet, Jesus, who gave his life for them and created them a new community, one which went beyond ethnic boundaries and invited anybody who would follow him. That was the holy nation of which they were a part the holy nation of which they were a part. And they were a holy temple in the midst of that. He says, uh, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's saying, I have created a new people among you. And what he's doing here in this text, and I can only take a couple moments to give you the sense of it, he speaks about them as a holy nation in verse 9, and then in verses 4 and 5, as a holy temple. They are a holy nation, and they are a holy temple. Let's take, for example, this holy temple in the verses 4 and 5. You come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. What's he talking about? A spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The, the, what, he's referring to the ancient story 
when the glory of God had been removed from, the, from God's presence in the Garden of Eden, but then ultimately came to Moses in a burning bush. You remember? He saw the glory of God. And Moses was told to call the people out of, his, out of Egypt and to take them to the, up to Sinai. We're on a mountain. God met with them, having delivered them across the Red Sea, and now sets up his covenant with them. And the glory of God comes on the mountain, and it's frightening, and there's thunder, and there's cla- the thunderclaps and lightning and all of this. It's frightening. The glory of God is, is there. And ultimately, the law, the covenant is given. The people respond to that covenant. And then God says, I want you to build me a place of worship, make it a little bit like that church of the church of the chip. It did look a little bit like that, a tabernacle that uh, they built. And when they did that according to God's instructions and built the Ark of the Covenant as God and the Holy of Holies behind in the back of it and the, and the, and the uh, poles and the tents, it really was a lot like that in a lot of ways. And once they did that, the glory of God came in that tent of meeting, that tabernacle. The glory of God was there. What is he saying? That when we respond in faith to Christ, we become part of a, of a spiritual house where the Lord of God is, Lord God is, a, is among us. The Bible says that when we gather, even though we're just human beings getting together on a hot Sunday morning, wondering when the sermon's going to end and we can start to eat, <laughs> The glory of God is among us. He's in individual persons, yes, but he's fundamentally in his church. We are part of his holy temple. God lives in our own hearts, but in a deeper way, God lives in our community as we meet together. That's kind of what it means when it says, uh, like living stones. Each Each of us is like a living stone being built up as a spiritual house and, and in that spiritual house, we become a holy priesthood. I have a block home, and there are many blocks that are in my home. I know because I literally carried every single one of those blocks numerous times because I was hired myself to my cousin, who was the builder, uh, to be the, well, they called it a hottie. It's the person who makes the mud, moves the bricks, and just does all the hard work so they can slap it on. I moved thousands of those bricks. They're very, very heavy. And, you know, every one of those bricks matter. You can't just start pulling them out. But neither of them is a house all by itself. Together they make a house. And the bricks above them are dependent upon them. And the bricks below them, they are dependent upon. And there is a beautiful thing that happens when you put a lot of bricks together and bind them together in to make a habitation for a human being to live in. And that's what has happened through the building of the people of God. There's a holy habitation for God to be. So don't disrespect Christ's church. I know you can worship God on a mountain, but you can't worship him as well as you can in the corporate gathering of people. I know you can read the Bible all by yourself, but you can't and shouldn't simply assume that you can understand it all by yourself, just you and me and the Holy Spirit. No, where the church is the repository of God's collective expression of his will from the first day until this day. Yes, we meet God in personal Bible study, yes, but especially when we have, I'm sure you've, I hope you've had it happen where you hear me read a text of scripture such as this one, perhaps, and you think about it, you think, that's kind of, I don't, I don't get it. What's he going to say about that? I don't know. 
And then all of a sudden, the scripture begins to be opened up. And a, a, a life begins to be observed within that text that begins to speak to me, and we experience it all together. That's why, although we do record our sermons and try to put them on the uh, Internet whenever we remember to do so, we really value the gathered community of people who've come together as living stones to hear the Word of God taught. Something beautiful that happens in the midst of that. Yeah. We experience God in personal Bible study, but it becomes clearer to us in the preaching of the Scriptures by those who are gifted to do so. We may experience God in personal worship and prayer, yes, but so much more in the, the gathered community, the glory of God inhabits His people. Now, the church is a human institution. It has human feelings, but it's not just a human institution. It's the only human institution that Jesus started. No other institution was started by Jesus himself. Upon this rock, I will build my church, he said to Peter. It's, it's got all the foibles and the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies and all the difficulties that any human institution has, except for this. The Holy Spirit is ultimately in charge of the church and all the things we try to do to destroy it in our failings. God is a way of keeping his church moving. Yes, it's an institution started by Jesus Christ. That's why he never allows it to become utterly calcified. That's where we find periods of, of, of revival and reformation and new things happen because God is always working in his church. The church is not merely a, a museum. It's a movement. We are a holy temple, and then we also are a holy nation, a holy, uh, a holy nation. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are part of a, such a broader community. There are people in North Korea today who are worshiping Jesus just like we are. There are people in Germany today who are worshiping Jesus just like we are. There are people in Mexico today, and some of them are in detainment facilities just across the border, worshiping God just like we are. There are people all over this world, 24 hours a day, who are worshiping God all over this world. And they are our brothers, and they are our sisters, and they are the ones with whom we have truest relationship. We are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In fact, the ninth verse is a direct reference to uh, the Exodus story when God set his covenant up with Israel and, and, and he says, now you are my chosen possession, my most valued possession, my most valuable thing. That's how God feels about us. He is called, as it says, out of darkness into light. He has called us out of darkness into light. We have been chosen by God. We didn't earn his favor by our own good deeds. We have been selected by him, not because we were choice, but because we were chosen. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that we were, they were not much of a choice people at all. But we have been loved beyond imagination. We are God's treasured possession. God could say, you know, I own all the galaxies in the world, but you guys are my favorite. 
I own all the fish and all the sea. I have all wisdom. I have everything. But the thing I love the most is you. How much loved we are by God. Yes, we should be springing the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light because we see that we've been chosen by his grace, not because of our good deeds, that we've been chosen to be his special possession. Yes, and he loves us so. And then it says, that 10th verse, and I just want to take a moment. When he says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I hope you have two or three minutes to give me your attention on this. This is a quote from the book of Hosea. It's a reference to the book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, chapter 1 and 2, God has Hosea the prophet be married to a, an unfaithful woman, a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. And she had her first baby, and her baby was not one that he had birthed, or that, that Hosea, uh, not his baby. So he named that baby not my child. God told him to do it. Not my child. <laughs> and then she had another baby. Her name was No Mercy. No Mercy. And God was making the point that his people had been so rebellious against him that they really almost weren't even his anymore. Now, this woman ran off with another lover and left Hosea. She was ultimately sold into slavery. And Hosea then sees his wayward wife on the auction block there. And God says to her, I want you to buy that adulterous wife back to make her part of your family again. And so Hosea says simply, so I bought her And that's when God says to Hosea, just as you have bought back this woman, though she didn't deserve it to be part of your family, I too will buy back my people. So the people who are not my people will become my people. The people who have no mercy will now receive mercy. That even though they had no right to respond to God in grace, God would buy them back. And so when Peter here is saying, God, uh, you are now, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, when did God buy back his people? Well, on the auction block of sin, where you and I, all the people of God, under the weight of the law, condemned to death for our own misdeeds, And yet God came, and he came in the person of his son, Jesus, into the marketplace of human sin. And he paid the price, the ransom price, so that we who were not his people could become his people. For we who deserved the mercy could receive his mercy. If you can get a picture of that in your mind, you will understand the beauty of being a part of the people of God. As we close our time together, we'll have the Lord's table, which is that weekly reminder of how it is that we became the people of God and how it is that we received the mercy of God. He was condemned so that you and I could have life.
He suffered death so that we could have death. He was, uh, we could be forgiven because of the life that he gave for us. Yes, we are a holy nation. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercies. mercy. We are a people for God's own possession so that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Maybe you feel like you're on the auction block today. You've made choices that make you not his people. Good news. Jesus died and paid the price for us to come back to him. Let's have prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though it was we who failed you, it was you who loved us. Help us to be a holy nation. Help us to live honorable lives. And in so doing, may many people glorify God on the day of visitation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.